for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we look back at the remarkable life and legacy of Edson Arantes de Nascimento, better known as Pele, the Brazilian soccer superstar and three-time World Cup winner passed away today at the age of 82. Former goalie and broadcaster Dick Howard talks about being scored on by Pele in Toronto in 1972 and his incredible impact on the so-called beautiful game. Are you ready for an emergency? All the weather-induced chaos over the Christmas period has put preparedness front and center once again. We find out what you need to know to be prepared. But first, there are many questions being asked tonight about why one of the suspects in the shooting death of an Ontario Provincial Police Constable was out on bail despite facing charges including assaulting a police officer and possessing a firearm while already under a lifetime ban from possessing firearms. Could the death of Constable Greg Priscilla have been prevented? We begin tonight, though, in Ontario. It has been a tragic year for police officers across this country, but in that province in particular, with the latest shooting death of an Ontario Provincial Police Constable, Greg Persala, uh, over on Tuesday. Uh, the 28-year-old, you may have seen this already, the 28-year-old was on patrol by himself on Tuesday afternoon near the town of Hagersville, that's southwest of Hamilton, when he responded to a call about a car in a ditch, a car that turned out to have been stolen. Police say he was ambushed and shot as soon as he got out of his vehicle. Two suspects fled in another vehicle, allegedly stolen from a passerby who'd stopped at the scene. They were arrested a short distance away. Uh, Yesterday, 25-year-old Randall McKenzie of Kingston and 30-year-old Brandy Crystal Lynn Stewart-Sperry of Hamilton were charged with first-degree murder in the death uh, of the constable. And there are so many layers to this loss. Uh, First, Constable Priscilla, who had dreamed of becoming a police officer since he was a young boy, had just learned that morning that he'd passed probation after nearly a year with the OPP. Uh, OPP Commissioner Thomas Carrick described him this way. Despite his short time with us, he had been patrolling independently since April of this year, had earned himself a highly regarded and respected reputation from his peers for his dedication to duty, his commitment to being there when his colleagues needed him most. They knew they could rely upon him in the most dangerous and stressful of situations. Now, Priscilla had quite the career before he joined the OPP. He had been in the armed forces. He'd been a wrestler in university. His former coach, Sean Jarris, who's also a police officer, said they'd kept in touch over the years and they spoke about the risks involved in this profession. This was his dream job. This is what they, he wanted. And, you know, and he knew that the dangers of, you know, the job. I've talked about that before with him. And, you know, people just want to, you know, as a police officer, want to help, want to make the world a better place. Some people just don't want that to happen. Now, there are investigations underway to try to figure out exactly what happened, but we are learning more tonight about one of the suspects in this case. Court documents show that Randall McKenzie, the 25-year-old, was prohibited in 2018 for life from possessing any firearms. Then he was released on bail six months ago while facing charges, including assaulting a police officer and possessing a handgun despite that ban. He was initially denied bail later granted upon review, the bail was at least, and when he failed to attend court uh, a few months ago, a warrant was issued for his arrest. Here again is OPP Commissioner Thomas Carrick. Needless to say, the murder of Constable of Greg, the murder of Constable Greg was preventable. This should have never happened. Something needs to change. 
our police officers, your police officers, my police officers, the public, deserve to be safeguarded against violent offenders who are charged with firearms-related offenses. Well, joining me now is Mark Baxter. He's the president of the Ontario Police Association, which represents some 45,000 officers from across that province. Thank you so much, and our condolences, of course, to the whole police family in Ontario tonight. Good evening, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, thanks for the, the words of condolences. You know, it seems not that long ago we were talking about the two officers uh, who were shot and killed um, in Ontario, and here we are talking about it again. It must be such mm-hmm. a difficult time for, for officers right across the province to, to have to contend with yet another tragedy. It really is. And, you know, any time any, any police officer is injured or killed in the line of duty, it really affects all of us, right? We're, we're all doing the same job just in different communities. And so when one officer uh, is injured or, kill, or killed, uh, it has a, a, ripple, a ripple effect across the profession. Everyone feels it. And our entire policing profession is in mourning uh, as we mourn uh, the, another senseless murder and killing uh, of a police officer in Ontario. You know, I, I, I remember, I think I used the word routine referring to the, uh, to the Ingersoll, I think it was Ingersoll, um, killing the, the deaths a few months ago. And I was told, you know, there is no such thing as a routine call. They're, they're all calls, right? But again, we, it seems like a situation where it was a fairly typical call. Um, what do we know about the circumstances other than what I've talked about? Well, I mean, certainly I, I can tell you what we know is that on Tuesday morning, a young police constable did what all of our members do. He put on a uniform and he went to work to keep his community safe. And as you said it earlier, this was an exciting day for him. He just finished his probation. And at a time during the holiday season where kids are not in school, so many people are not at work and are enjoying the week between Christmas and New Year's with family, with friends at home. Uh, this officer, like so many others, left their families, went to work, and he stopped to help some people that were in the ditch. And when he was there, he was senselessly gunned down uh, by the suspects. And, you know, we're just, our, our hearts are broken for, for his family and for his colleagues. Uh, Innisfil, of course, is where the officers Northrop and Russell were, were killed earlier this year. Mm-hmm. We're hearing a lot about the bail situation for one of the suspects in this case. Uh, we certainly heard the OPP commissioner talking about it. How much of a concern is this? I mean, clearly this was someone who had, had run-ins with the police in the past, had uh, a firearms ban in place. Uh, he'd been granted bail again. Is that a real topic of concern right now? Yeah, it is. I'm concerned. Um, I think it, we have a, a big problem in our system when we've got an accused who's on bail for, you know, not like very serious offenses. You know, he was arrested and it's been widely reported for serious offenses, violent offenses, firearm offenses, assaulting a police officer. You know, he's held in custody for a number of months. And then a Superior Court justice decides after some seven or eight months that, you know, pretrial custody is been hard on him and they're going to let him uh they're going to let him out with some strict conditions and um unfortunately you know the 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 conditions as we see so many times uh weren't adhered to and he had a history of not adhering to court-ordered conditions right he was on a firearms prohibition and at least twice now we know he was in possession of a firearm he doesn't attend court gets a warrant and now he has the ability to get access to another firearm 
and gunned down and murder one of our police officers. And, uh, you know, I think, our, you know, I know our members expect better. And as we've heard today from the community that, you know, our society expects a lot better of our justice system. Yeah. Um, what can be done, though? Because, you know, there is the presumption of innocence, obviously, and, and it's a really tricky one, isn't it, when it comes to bail? I know I know you're not a lawyer, uh, but it's a really tricky one when it comes to bail. And, and how do you respect that presumption, uh, not cra- overcrowd our jails? At the same time, you want to make sure the ones who are capable of, of these sorts of crimes, I should mention, of course, that these are just allegations against this individual at this time, uh, but, you know, that, that those who are who are capable of committing heinous crimes are in fact singled out it's it's a tough one yeah it can be tough i think we need to have real conversation about what we're going to do um with keeping people with having people held in custody um before trial when they're charged with serious offenses when they're charged with an ongoing number of violent offenses there are provisions under the criminal code where um the accused must uh, show cause why they should be released when they've committed certain offenses. And one of those offenses is for uh, failing to comply with previous orders. And so when he was held rightfully uh, over a year ago in custody for the first set of offenses, for breaching uh, the firearms prohibition, for being found in possession of a firearm and all of those other charges, you know, he he had to show cause why he couldn't get out. And then, you know, a superior court judge in June uh, decided that, you know, it was time to let him out before, before his trial. Mark Baxter is with us, the president of the Ontario Police Association. We're talking about the death of OPP Constable Greg Prashala on Tuesday afternoon, the aftermath, what we've been finding out, at least about one of the two suspects charged with murder in this case, uh, who had been out on bail, who was already had a lifetime firearms ban imposed back in 2018. Um, uh, Greg, uh, uh, Mark, rather, this, this comes after such a, a, a devastating few months uh, when one looks at, you know, I was listening to criminologists talk today about how this isn't a trend and so on. But if you're an outsider like us and you're looking at this, you're thinking, what's going on and what can be done to make sure that 2023 is a safer year for your for your membership? Yeah. And, uh, you know, certainly we hope that it isn't a trend. Um, you know, the murder of Consul Percella obviously is is horrific and senseless. And, um, you know, I think the one thing that we have to do is we have to learn from this. And um, like the other two um incidents that involved the killings of three police officers in Ontario earlier this year. Um, you know, we have to look closely at every detail of what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And then most importantly, is there some way that we can reduce the chances of it happening again? You see, you mentioned, I was reading an interview you'd given elsewhere where you said you, you've seen a change out there too. There are more incidents of police use of force as well. It feels like things are getting, there's been a sort of a change out there. And, and I, I get the impression that you would really like to address that with both the Canadian Police Association and governments. Where do you start? Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's the million dollar question is where do we start? I mean, we are seeing a rise in violence, you know, the crime severity index continues to rise you know 2021 crime severity index rose again uh i live uh just outside the gta and it seems like every morning i turn on the news and i'm seeing some other you know type of violent incident that's occurred occurred whether it's a shooting or homicide or something like that and so it seems to me that as violent crime is on the rise obviously um police interactions with individuals uh is is naturally going to also increase and, and it puts our members at risk it increases use of force um incidents um you know there is has been uh, a use or an increase in police involved um shootings over the last 
uh, year um, across the country, and 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 I attribute it to the the spike in violent crime that's occurring in our in our communities. And you've been mentioning as well that at a time when recruitment has been difficult for everybody, uh, that this may dissuade good people from wanting to go into the to, to policing. Yeah, and so you know, recruiting, you know, just like every other profession. Um, policing has a, a recruitment problem right now, right? You know, we, um, we're we not immune to the staffing challenges that we're seeing in healthcare and teaching and really every other profession right now. And so with um, with these incidents that happen, um, it does continue to make recruitment a challenge. But having said that, um, policing is, uh, and particularly policing in Canada, is a, rel- is a safe, there's just a lot of dangers um, but, you know, we're not seeing, fortunately, uh, the number of police officers killed in the line of duty like we see in the United States. Um, it's a dangerous job, but it's a very rewarding job. And policing is, is a calling. And, you know, we know that there are lots of people out there looking for ways to get involved with their community, um, support their community, give back to their community. And policing is, is a great way um, that you can do that. Just from what I've heard said about him in the last uh, 48 hours, it seems like Greg Pashala really embodied everything you're talking about. That's what, that's what it certainly seems to me. And, you know, there's a picture um, going around uh, on social media of him with, I think, with, with a horse from uh, a county fair um, down in, in the Hagersville area uh, this past fall. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, when I see that photo, I think of, of a police officer at the fair interacting with the public, building relationships uh, and building bridges um, between the public and between the police. And, and I just, everything we hear and everything we see about, uh, about Greg is, is, yeah, is that he embodied all of that. And we know tomorrow there'll be a procession, right, uh, with his remains from Toronto back to his hometown of Barrie. Another sad day, I guess, for obviously for, uh, for Ontario police and for police right across the country. This has been a tough year, and it feels like this is a really tragic end to what has already been a really tough five months. Yeah, it's, um, the, the procession is going to take place tomorrow from the Centre of Forensic Science uh, at 9 a.m. I'm going to be there with, I know, a lot of uh, my policing colleagues. And, you know, we know a lot of, a lot of the public are going to come out. And um, the one, you know, if there's anything positive that can come from the tragedies that we've had in the last number of months is that we hear from the silent majority of the public that they do support the police um, and that they're appreciative of the job that we do, that we don't often hear about it and it's unfortunate it takes events like this to happen um, for, for us to hear it uh, from the community. And so I, I'm confident tomorrow and I encourage members of the community to get on the overpasses going up Highway 400, support, um, show your support to the men and women that are going to be escorting uh, his body up to a, to a funeral home in Barrie. And I'm sure the rest of us from afar will be watching tomorrow morning as well. Mark, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Now, I can't remember when I first heard the name Pele. All I knew is that even as a young boy who didn't know anything about soccer, really, I, my mom got me season tickets to the Edmonton Drillers back in the late 70s. But I really didn't know much about soccer. I liked to play, but I didn't know much about the World Cup. I didn't know anything about the North American Soccer League. Really, Montreal didn't have a team. But I knew the name Pele for some reason. I think everybody knew the name. There was probably... You know, you know you're famous when everyone knows you by just one name. And there probably wasn't 
a better example of that than Edison Arantes de Nascimento, uh, known as Pele, of course. Now, the Brazilian legend had been in poor health for quite some time. It was colon cancer uh, that claimed his life. He was 82. Uh, he died in Brazil today. But his stature in soccer and sport in general is hard to overstate after really soaring to stardom in 1958 as a 17-year-old when he helped Brazil win the World Cup in Sweden. He went on to win two more in 1962 and again in 1970. That's still a record. Uh, he would come out of retirement, uh, probably due to some financial issues, but he'd come out of retirement to play in New York with the Cosmos, in the North American Soccer League in the mid-70s, drawing these massive crowds. It was amazing to see the kinds of crowds that he would draw, 70,000, 60,000, 70,000 people to watch him play. Um, this from a kid who didn't wear boots to play soccer until he was 12 for the first time. Uh, in so many ways, he really came to define a sport while rising above it, the standard bearer of what would be called the beautiful game. He was the embodiment of the beautiful game. Here he is speaking, speaking of 75,000 people. He played his final game uh, in 1977 at Giant Stadium in New Jersey uh, when his Brazilian club, Santos, came to visit for an exhibition and he played one half with his his team of many years Santos from Brazil and the other half with New York Cosmos. He spoke to the crowd that day, here's what he had to say. He scores! Pele! And I want to ask you because I think, I believe, love is the, uh, the, the more important and what we can take in life. Everything past. Please say to me, say with me, three times, love, love. Uh, the one and only Pele at Giant Stadium back in 1977. Um, there will be 48 hours of national mourning in Brazil. Needless to say, reaction there has been likened to the death of the Queen. Um, all major news channels and web portals immediately switch to wall-to-wall -wall coverage, often black and white headlines. Tributes have been pouring in from the sporting world and beyond. Current Brazilian star Neymar, who wears Pele's number 10, said before Pele, football was just a sport. Pele changed it all. Uh, Francis Kylian Mbappe also uh, and Lionel Messi also expressed their condolences today. Former President Obama said one of the most recognizable athletes in the world. He understood the power of sports to bring people together. Well, to give you an idea, and he's probably, I mean, Wayne Gretzky would probably be the best example in hockey of what Pele's uh, impact was, but on a far greater scale because of the popularity, the international nature of soccer. He scored 1,283 goals, 1,283 in 1,367 games. That is a remarkable number of goals. Um, about a third of those were exhibition matches that his team, Santos, would play around the world to raise money. You know, everyone wanted to see him play. And they played one at Varsity Stadium in Toronto in July of 1972. And Pele scored that day on a penalty kick to put his team up 3-2 against the Toronto Metros. Well, in goal that night for Toronto was Dick Howard, 
who'd go on, of course, you may recognize the name, go on to have a long career as a broadcaster once he hung up his soccer boots. Um, he would meet Pele many more times over the years as a broadcaster. So not only was he scored by, <laughs> scored against by Pele, he also knew him pretty well. So what better person to talk about the incredible legacy that the one man left behind, both in sports and beyond, uh, than Dick Howard, the Canadian Soccer Hall of Fame inductee, joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure, Ben. You know, we just watched the World Cup. There was a lot of debate raging about the greatest of all time. But when one thinks back to Pele, he seems to stand on the shoulders of everyone else who's ever played uh, the beautiful game. Uh, just how much uh, of a legend was he? Oh, just an amazing legacy. With Pele, I think, to my mind, he's one of the greatest athletes there is. And it's a sad day today with his passing. But when we were comparing him, of course, to the World Cups, that's where he made his presence felt because in 1958, he was playing in Sweden as a 17-year-old player. 68, 62, sorry, he went to Chile. They won the World Cup in Chile, the Brazilians. In 1966, I saw them, and I saw Pele be kicked out of the game, not physically, but not with a red car, but physical treatment and didn't complete the duet that they got the first two World Cups. And then, of course, in 1970, we saw that marvellous final in Mexico, which many people feel was the greatest ever World Cup. So he's made his impression felt on the world stage. And that was my first recognition of the great Pelé was seeing him play in, in Sweden and scoring some great goals and realising that he was only, you know, three years older than I was. Yeah, I mean, he made such a mark. What was incredible about him was his longevity as well. I mean, one look thinks of athletes now playing into their mid-late 30s, into their early 40s and so on. But back then, I mean, he came out of retirement to come and play in North America. He sort of revolutionized the game in the U.S. as well. Yeah, he, tremendous. He played his club career, of course, all the time with Santos. The, the government of Brazil did not want to release one of their main assets, to play in European or football elsewhere in the world. And, of course, he came to the Cosmos in 1975, and we saw some marvellous games that he played in the North Amer old North American Soccer League. As a footballer, I mean, you were a goalkeeper, so you would have paid a lot of attention to, to the kind of movement that happened in front of you uh, or facing you. What made him so magical? Oh, just he, he could do everything. You know, you talk about attacking players. He could score with volleys, right, left, head overhead kicks, you name it. He just had that tremendous asset and he was such a tremendous athlete to do that. And I encountered that when I first played against and my only time I played against Pelé was 50 years ago, would you believe, in 1972 in Toronto at Varsity Stadium. Warm summer evening and Toronto Metros of the old North American Soccer League were playing against Santos from Brazil with number 10 featured in the Brazilian lineup. What was so that, that like? Really, what was that? What was that like to see number ten out there in front of you in the Santos shirt, no less? Yeah, we were leading two nothing at half time. Then we had a player sent off. Didn't help matters, and Santos came back with four unanswered goals to win the game four two. But Pelé scored the third and key goal to put them ahead three two. And I tried. I don't know. I'm still thinking to this day why I did it, but I. Walk from the goal towards. Yeah, it was a penalty, right? Just so everyone understands yeah. it. He didn't like to. He didn't really like to take penalties, but he took this one against I, you. I came up and shook his hand, wished him good luck, 
he gave me a look that surprised me. When I'm picking the ball out of the back of the net, he came over and just ruffled my hair as if to say, you know, better luck next time, goalkeeper. <laughs> but uh, it didn't work. I tried to psych him out, but uh, I'm trying to do that with a player who's scoring his, I think his 1100th goal against me. So. Yeah, by 1972, I guess he'd had everything tried against him. What was it like to stand in nets and to look up and see the great Pele standing in front of you about to take a spot kick? It's a bit unnerving. He placed the, pick, the pace and the speed of the kick and just inside the, the post. It's a brilliant penalty kick, no chance at all. I don't think I even moved on it. But uh, it is a daunting figure when you, you look at a player of his stature and he's, of course, by that time, well-known throughout the world. And uh, it didn't come off in making the save, but it established contact with Pelé. And from that time, over the years, I've met him many times, and I'm still this friendly Canadian that uh, tried to score against him by faking him out with a shaking of the hands. But it's been great over the years because I've met him, I've interviewed him, I've uh, Seen him play, obviously, in all the World Cups with the work I do for the World Cup telecasts. And when I went to do a lot of work with FIFA at the time, the technical committee, Pele was in the football committee and we often had joint meetings. So I'd have a chance then to touch base with him and found him always so friendly. He's just a fabulous ambassador for the game and has been over the years. So humble. You certainly weren't the only goalkeeper to give up a goal to Pele over the years, right? You joined oh, you joined an illustrious an illustrious group. And some made great saves, Ben. The England goalkeeper Gordon Banks made what many people feel is the greatest ever save. That was from a Pele header that Banks managed to deflect over the crossbar in the 1970 World Cup. So there was some success from certain goalkeepers, but it certainly wasn't Dick Howard. <laughs> yeah, he uh yeah, that's still he did come by, he did come by and as you said earlier, he he kind of came up to talk to you after you as you're picking the ball out of the net. So, he recognized that you would he didn't just walk away and walk walk back to to start up the game again. He actually came and acknowledged you. Yeah, the the key thing was that they were at that time it, the scores were tied 2-2 and he wanted to get the ball to get the ball back into play again and they did and scored another goal, but uh it was certainly a, a great experience and good crowd, 20,000 in the Varsity Stadium in Toronto, which is one of the oldest stadiums. Uh, you talked a lot about the kind of man he, he was, was Dick, because you, you'd interviewed him over the years. You have a great story about him in Dundee uh, talking <laughs> at a match where you saw him. And just something about his humility made him made him really a really engaging human being. It was a, a youth tournament and the 16 World Championship, FIFA World Championship. Pele was there as a guest of FIFA and great to bring him in to the scene because people knew him so well and to have Pele in their presence, that was great. And I was running a cup of tea at half time, so I went down to the tea room and there's Pele talking to the tea ladies. And this was the thing about Pele because he had such a great smile. He was, he was such a great ambassador for the game. Wherever you went to in the world, people recognized the name Pele and recognized the figure Pele. You mentioned it earlier with the 20,000 people at Varsity Stadium in Toronto. I was watching his final match uh, when he played half the match with Santos and half the match with Cosmos in New York in 1977, when I think there were 75,000 people at Giant Stadium. Uh, soccer soccer wasn't a big, wasn't a particularly popular sport in North America at the time. And yet Pelé was able 
to kind of revolutionize the game, it seemed at least, uh, on this continent. There's a great move by Clive Toy, who was involved with the New York Cosmos at the time, and he was the one that wrote the, the check for Pelé. Some seconds it was a million. Who knows? But there was a lot of money to bring him out of semi-retirement to play. And uh, I still remember that first game against, uh, I think it was Dallas. Dallas. Dallas, yeah. And they had to spray areas of the field with green paint because the, it was quite a rough surface and not the kind of surface that the great one needed to play on. But uh, he came and he played in, in Toronto. He played in Vancouver. So people knew about the North American Soccer League and he was very much a person who made, could one say, popular sport in the 70s. He went through a sport spell and it wasn't too well. But uh, Pelé brought a lot of people into the stadia. And, of course, with the New York Cosmos and Beckenbauer and company, there were many great players that then eventually came to play in North America. When you look at his legacy, I mean, I, I don't remember him. I was young when he retired. I, I mean, the name, you never could you could never avoid the name. Um, but when you look back at the impact he had, one can only imagine that he really made soccer an international sport, the beautiful game, as he coined it. But he was so responsible for for internationalizing and popularizing the sport as we now know it. The, the global game, and no better exponent of that than Pelé, with Santos, of course, they went on many tours throughout the world and very profitable ones because the calling card of having the number 10 Pelé with the team made good proposition to go and watch the teams play and as I say Santos very much travelled the world and Pele was the one that played the most games and as I say averaging nearly a, a goal a game I made a note 1,363 games he scored 1,281 goals Remarkable When you look at it today when you look at the amount of money that footballers make now and look back at, at Pele back then although he you know he was paid well to go to New York um but you mentioned it earlier. There was something about his humility. He, he, he would be a good template for the stars of today in some way. That's a great word to use and great adjective, Ben, because he was such a great ambassador. There was no ego involved with Pelé. I remember once I was at a game in London, walking to this press centre on Wembley, which is the main stadium in London, and Pelé was walking up some steps to the side of me and I shouted out Pelé, came back, gave a hug. Always very tactile, always made people feel at home and he was just so so good. We had several events in Toronto over the years promoting the World Cup and uh, the sponsors involved. We're delighted because Pelé would come into a room and uh, everybody was just in awe of being in the presence of the Great One. And I was almost in tears today when I heard the news. He's been coming, of course, he's suffered through illnesses in recent years, but still when it happened, you still really hadn't by saddened by the whole spirit. Dick Howard, thank you so much for sharing all your memories of Pele tonight. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Uh, there's been some real trouble out there. We've been having trouble coping with it. Um and it led me to think, and this sort of started back when there was that huge snowstorm in Vancouver uh, in early December that really clogged the whole city shut down. Now, that's not 
unexpected. That's what happens in Vancouver when there's a huge snowstorm. But there was just a lot of complaining about it. A lot of people were really surprised and upset, even though there'd been kind of warnings out there saying, listen, it's going to be bad, you know, be prepared. And still there was chaos. And we've seen the same thing happen this past week. I mean, there were there was lots of warning out there that this storm was coming and that it would be big and it would be bad, a storm of the, storm of the century kind of uh, talk going on. And yet it still created all this chaos. And it's a reminder of just how extreme, extreme weather events have become. Um, you know, we're seeing shifts in the rain and snow patterns that we experience every day. And it means often that the storms that we do see are more frequent and they're more severe when they are the more severe storms are more, more frequent. We often hear the term that, you know, once in a century storms become once in a decade storms. We saw it with the flooding in BC. We saw it with Fiona, uh, over the, uh, last summer, late summer in, uh, the, in the Eastern Canada. But are we ready? That's the big question. Are we ready for what's coming? We've seen what's happened in Buffalo, another unprecedented snowstorm, you know, one for the ages, but there was lots of warning. Um, they have all these tools now that we didn't have before, better communication, social media, phones, the whole bit. They didn't have those back in 77 and 85, back when the previous big blizzards hit that city. And yet there were still deaths this time. People still got caught out. So are we ready uh, for what awaits? Are we ready for what we're already facing? Uh, in terms of emergency preparedness, do we have everything we need? Joining me now with more on that is Jean Slick. She's a program head and associate professor in disaster and emergency management graduate programs at Royal Roads University here in Victoria, where I am. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Jean. Uh, thank you for having me, Ben. So this was a really interesting question because I think it, at, when I first contacted you, you, you were away, but it goes back quite a while to that big snowstorm in Vancouver. And it's just been worse since, right? As someone in your shoes, what are you seeing? It must be, is it cause for concern? Well, it's an interesting question that you pose about are we prepared? So I would say on one hand, yes, and on one hand, no. So um, certainly we do know that people are generally prepared to cope with some kinds of disruptions in their lives, um, with snow, some snowstorms, things like that. But in terms of the percentage of the population that's really prepared to deal with an emergency, you know, a serious disruption, about half the population has an emergency kit and says they've taken those kind of actions. Um, research has shown that actually Canadians are more aware of winter storms and being prepared for winter storms. And one of the things that they're less prepared for uh, is, is things like heat waves that we've experienced, but also uh, differs depending on the nature of the hazard. Yeah, when you look at one of the things that strikes me, and and this was this goes to I mean Buffalo isn't in Canada, but it could be. It's close enough. Is that it? And and I, you know I was here for the heat dome in BC uh, a lot a few years back. It's that the we're not you know the weather that we used to think we were used to that we thought we were prepared for seems to have gotten just a little bit more extreme, and that we're not like we're prepared for heat, but not the heat dome. We're prepared for bad snow, but not the kind of snow that we've seen of late, it feels like the extreme weather is where we're getting caught out because we're used to be, we think we can handle it and we can't. That's correct. And so uh, certainly it is the extremes that are problematic for us. So extremes with snow, extremes with storms, extremes with flood, um, extremes with heat. And But that's what we really want people to be prepared for, right? It's like we need to be prepared for those things that are not within our normal um scope of experience. And and even though the events in Buffalo are outside the country, 
there's a benefit of seeing uh, this, you know, because of social media and reporting for us to be able to see the kind of events and what can happen. And that helps us to think about what we need to do at home, uh, both individually and collectively in communities to be prepared. When you look at how um, emergency response is coordinated and governed, I know when you know, some of the big things hit, you know, I think of the fires in Fort McMurray and so on, uh, but it seems these days that there's still a real patchwork out there when it comes to response. That's part of the problem they're having. Again, Buffalo is not is not Canada, but they're, one of the problems they're having is there's a lot of finger pointing going on already between municipal and state and so forth. And we see the same thing in Canada when there's big problems between the provinces and the cities. Uh, when it comes to even Vancouver, when it came to who is supposed to clear the snow, right? Like who is supposed to, who's in charge? Have we figured that out in a, in a coordinated enough way these days so that it's effective or it feels like it's still really a work in progress? Well, we know who is in charge from a legal perspective. We know that, you know, within Canada, the delegation of responsibility for looking after uh, major emergencies and disasters is the provinces. And in turn, they, they delegate that responsibility down to local governments and First Nations. The challenge, though, in that space is that different jurisdictions have different capacities. And the hazards, the things that impact us, don't actually follow the boundaries of jurisdictions so you know when we get when we have floods or we have fires they cross jurisdictions and so that's where you then need to move into this coordinated um, action and we can actually see that there are different capacities and and in some situations you've had events that have crossed um, provincial borders so you might have you know when we had ice storms uh, a long while ago in Ontario and Quebec. And so you have governments offering different kinds of assistance, even though it's the same event and people are impacted in a similar way. So there is some kind of, of impact in that. But there, are, but generally, um, jurisdictions that are larger are going to have more resources and more capacity, both to plan for, prepare, and respond to. But even still, those jurisdictions, it, it comes down to a matter of what's the consequence of the particular hazard and what's the capacity to respond. And at a certain point, there's going to be a threshold that's impacted. And then with situations like Buffalo um, or uh, other events, you have the local responders who are also impacted by an event. So if you're not able to protect them, um, then they're also having to cope with the event while trying to respond. And that just further compounds the situation. When we look at preparedness these days, because it is sort of the, not, it's not quite the opposite of response, but it's, it's sort of trying to mitigate some of that risk. Um, I know that it can often be expensive to prepare for something that may never come, but it feels like governments are becoming more aware now of the fact that being ready, that there, you know, that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure these days, at least. I get the sense. Is, is that, is that true? Yes, certainly. We know that investments in preparedness save lives. We know that um, efforts to mitigate risk related to floods and fires, as an example, um, will save costs down the road. The challenge is is to put the money into those preparedness efforts or mitigation efforts. You know, it's a choice that we're making in society about making those investments now to save lives and save dollars later versus competing agendas related to health or education. So, you know, yeah, we need to spend more to, um, in terms of preparedness, most certainly. There, there's no question about that. Um, but preparedness is across 
different levels too, right? So we want people individually to be prepared. And the more prepared they are to look after themselves and their households, then the better a community is able to cope. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed too. I, I, going back to the Vancouver example with that big uh, dump of snow uh, a while back was that there seems to be this this tendency for people, even in this country, to sort of throw up their arms and say, where's the help? And you're thinking, well... There is no help. Like, this is it. You know, I've been in countries where they're, you know, hit by disasters. And one of the things you notice very quickly is just how little help there actually is. And I think sometimes in Canada, we forget that. And then when disaster strikes, everyone sort of throws up their arms and looks for someone to blame about why, you know, why the roads weren't cleared fast enough or so on. When I I think you mentioned this already, a lot of it comes down to personal responsibility to a certain extent. I mean, we want to rely on governments to do, you know, to do what they're supposed to do. But a lot of it comes down to personal responsibility as well in these in these situations. It it does. And it's also just a reminder that there are some times when we're not going to be able to continue with our lives in the normal way and they are going to be disrupted. And so what what do we have? How can we prepare ourselves to effectively cope with the impacts? And it depends on our, you know, place in society and where we live and the and the nature of the hazard. Um, but it's also about our awareness of the particular risk. So if we, you know, go back to some of the heat dome events. Um, I think many people were surprised, including governments and individuals. Um, But in fact, you know, increase of heat extremes is something that we've known that we could prepare for. But bring us back more to the more recent events uh, as snow events on the West Coast, as an example, which are which can happen, but are but are infrequent. There are going to be periods of time when we need to be able to be self-sustaining. And so hence, that's that rule of thumb that you need to be able to look after yourself for at least 72 hours and, and to be self-sufficient in that regard. One of the things you were talking about earlier, Jean, was just, um, you know, needing to be ready, needing, needing to be prepared. Only about half of us, I guess, you know, out here in BC, because there's the earthquake threat, of course, uh, there's a lot of talk about being ready for disaster. But uh, I guess that message doesn't get through to everybody. What should we be doing? Well, the, the first thing is knowing about the hazards that are that affect could affect you in the place in which you live. So, so what you need to be ready for um, on the West Coast will differ than if you're in Manitoba or in Ottawa or in Halifax. So it's really understanding what the particular hazards are and then thinking through what the consequences of those hazards are. So if you're in a place that has uh, winter storms, you know, as we've been seeing now, then one of the big challenges there is, you know, the power's out. So do you have an alternative source of power um, or how will you stay warm? And so in some situations where, when you have extreme uh, cold and you have extended power outages, you'll have heating centers, places where people can go to stay warm. But the challenge is then is, you know, do you have people access um, to those kinds of uh, facilities. So it comes back to thinking about what are the particular hazards and then what do you need to do? There's some common things, of course, that we ask people to um, do to be prepared. Um, and that is in terms of, you know, having access to important documents, contact numbers, basic emergency kit. Some of the things that we we talk about, so if you think about extended power outage that we're, people are dealing with now, um, you know, it's either a wind-up or battery-operated radio, but more often people are relying on their cells. So it's really about, you know, is there, do you have a battery backup for a cell? How long can you keep your cell phone running when you don't have um, access to power? 
So ensuring that you've got the resources to um, cope with those impacts and disruptions, and it will differ because people who have medical conditions are going to have specific needs. People with um, young children will have other needs. So it's really around thinking about the particular hazard and the consequence, and then what do you need to be able to survive in that situation for, and I'm going to say at least 72 hours. I think the 72-hour guideline um, should be seen as a minimum, which is uh, a period of time before organized assistance can be more generally uh, available. Yeah, buying time for everything to get organized, right? Um, mm-hmm. 72 yeah. hours seems about right. You know, what, what do we have at home? We have the, we have the earthquake, kit, of course, because we're in Victoria, right? So it's right. water, it's power, it's power, it's food. Um, you know, you have to remember to, to replenish it. Uh, and the thing, of course, is that you may never use it, right? Which is which is a good thing. That's true. But part of it is, is about, um, you know, if it's food and water, it's about having those things um, recycled. If it, it, and it's trying to ensure that the, the things that you have are many of these things we can add to on an ongoing basis. And I think the pandemic was a good lesson for everyone in terms of having sufficient supplies on hand in, in the event of um, supply shortages. So it's around trying to build up supplies, but also to use those supplies on an ongoing basis. Right. Jean Slick, thank you so much for your time tonight and for uh, for indulging in this. I've, it's, this was just got me thinking with all that has been going on that, you know, are we prepared for, for big emergencies? And sometimes, uh, you know, when you, th- you see things like what happened in Vancouver or what's happened in Buffalo, you really realize how fragile it all is and how quickly everything can kind of fall apart on people and how ill-prepared we are for it sometimes. Yeah, and so taking these kinds of events and using them as an incentive to say, okay, you know, I, I wasn't prepared this time, but I will be next time. So it's, re- you know, ta- if, you, if you don't have the things that you need uh, to cope with it, the situation, it's taking the action now. Yeah. Uh, Jean, thank you so much for your time and your advice tonight. Okay, thank you. Thank you.